Let's talk about the news. Doesn't that seem like kind of a contradiction? This is a holiday that celebrates life, right? But so often what we read about in the news reeks of death. Syria, all the conflict that's going on there. ISIS, terror attacks. It's a really divisive season for our country. Just all the kinds of different murders you read about in the news. No one really wants to talk about that on Easter Sunday, right? We're celebrating spring, right? New life. Bunnies. But for me, this gets me thinking about hope for our lives and for the world. Is Easter just a day to escape thinking about the reality of life on our planet? A day to escape even maybe thinking about the struggles in your own life. Is there something more significant to Easter? Is there something that could be more than it just being an escape and a time to get away from problems? And there's actually something deeper to Easter that could be the remedy to those problems. On a daily today when we're celebrating spring, I mean, you think about on April 1st, everything was covered in snow. What a joke. And yet, right, today we say, okay, it's going to be 80 degrees maybe today, right? We're thinking about all the newness of life and spring and flowers budding and all these different things that kind of get us encouraged. But is it just a pep talk? Is it just an escape? Is there something more significant that actually might have the ability to change the world around us? Or even our world? Now there's a few directions you can go with this question. One of those directions is that there is no hope. That this is all there is in this world. The way of the world is survival of the fittest. It's the way of nature. Right? We may desire a better world for people around us or our own life, but really that's just an evolutionary um, result to help our species survive and cope with a, with a difficult world. I was coming out of our, our church office the other day, uh, just down the street, and I've become uh, quite a bit of an amateur birder. And I saw this, this small bird of prey, and I say amateur because I could not identify what it was. It was maybe a kite or something. And it landed on a little post, and then all of a sudden it just darted after this small bird into what I think was like arborvitaes or something, and popped out the other side with this bird in its claws. Dead. I was the witness to a murder. That small bird was killed. No one called the cops. There was no ambulance. There was no fuss made about it. Why? Because that is the way of nature. It's survival of the fittest, but there's something within us that says when it's the murder of a person that that is wrong and that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. So if we go the route of there's no hope, 
It does make certain sense to what we see around us in nature. But there's something deep in our heart that says it's not supposed to be this way. And so I would propose that there's another avenue to go. That there actually is hope that the world can change. And that man and men and women, that people are called to something higher than the rest of the world. We're going to look today at what the Bible says about this question. Is there hope for the world? We're in a series, we're looking through the Gospel of John, specifically the last four chapters, where Jesus is going through kind of the most difficult part of his life. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to pick up right at the end of this story in John chapter 20. And if you don't, it'll be up on the screen. And again, we're going to be looking at the Bible's answer to the question, is there hope for you and me and this world. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, probably John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, the slower one, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw that the linen clothes were lying there in the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. We see in this the story of the resurrection of Jesus. Now as we've been talking about, you know, we can't necessarily prove that this happened. There's a lot of evidence surrounding it. You know, kind of historically... But the question is, the Bible is presenting, to answer this question of, is there hope, is the story that Jesus rose from the dead and people bearing witness to that fact. And if Jesus rose from the dead, well, okay, great. That's kind of exciting. He's not dead. You know, he rose from the dead. What does that really mean? I mean, what is the significance? If this is the central event of all of Christianity, if everything hinges on this event that Jesus rose from the dead, what does that really mean? I mean, what is the big deal about Easter? What does it say about hope for this world? The resurrection means that life wins. It means that life wins victory over death. It means that light beats darkness, and it means that one day death will be defeated. If the tomb is empty, then there is a person that did not succumb to death. And not only is there life after death, but there is victory over it. Jesus became a man for one of the reasons to gain access to death. And then on the cross, he took on all the violence, all the sin of the world and death itself and defeated it by taking it into the tomb and rising again from the dead. Earlier this week, my wife and I were uh, 
walking around a local park called Long Hill. It's one of the trustees of the reservations, if you've heard of that, in Massachusetts. Uh, And it's in Beverly. And Jay was pointing out to Sam and Wes all the different flowers that had started to bloom. And I'm not much of a horticulturist, so I'll say there were some little purple ones, and there were some little white ones, and some daffodils. One for three there, okay? But that is just a picture. Every year, spring is reminding us that somehow life comes back after the long death of winter. That there's new life. That even in this cycle of this world, it's pointing to a greater truth that life will ultimately win over death. And the reason that life will have the victory is because Jesus rose from the dead. That's the reason. There's one who has gone before us and risen from the dead that promises a resurrection for all those that believe in him in the age, in the, in the age to come. See, the resurrection is the remedy. The resurrection is the remedy for this world, and it's the remedy for death. All right, continuing in this passage, verse 11, Mary hangs around. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Here's the second thing that the resurrection means. Maybe this is obvious, but the resurrection means that Jesus is still alive. That he's not dead. And furthermore, this passage alludes to the fact that he is now ascended to the Father in heaven and is ruling at the right hand of the Father. The point that the Bible makes clear is that even though it seems like a bummer, like, oh, Jesus left, it was necessary for him to to go up into heaven. And the reason is so that he could ascend to the throne to now orchestrate a total new order in this world. The Bible refers to it as a new creation. He's making all things new. I've made this point a number of times, and I'm going to make it again. In the Psalms, speaking of the one who was to come, David says, the Lord says, the Lord, like God, the Father sitting on his throne, says to my Lord, the one who's even the boss of King David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The resurrection means that Jesus is alive, and he is ruling. And what he is working to do is to work death out of this planet. Death and all of its companions, everything that came along with death, back from the death that entered because of Adam and Eve's sin, way back in the garden, Jesus is working to eradicate that from this planet. 
to this metaphor that it uses of, of putting something under your feet. That's what ancient kings used to do. When they would defeat an enemy, it was be like considered that they stepped on those kings. They put them under their feet. You even see a picture of that in the Bible where one king defeats some others and he stands on their king, those other kings' necks. It's a metaphor to say that they are defeating their enemies in totality. And what are the enemies of our world? Sickness, loneliness, depression, anxiety, fear, violence, abuse, rape, murder, poverty, homelessness, addiction, hatred. All of those things, Jesus' mission right now is to eliminate them from this planet. That is what he is doing. That is what he is up to. And that is why the resurrection matters. Jesus is alive and he is working these enemies and putting them under his feet. And the Bible says the last enemy to be defeated is death. So Jesus has declared war on all of these enemies. And just to make the point, Jesus' enemies are never people. People are not the enemy. The enemy is this long list of things that have been afflicting people for centuries. And Jesus has gone first ahead of us so that none of these things have a hold on him. And he is working so that they do not have a hold on us. On Friday morning, uh, Jade and I went with the boys and our little daughter. We went for a walk down to Kelleher Pond. It's right down the street from the Sterling Center YMCA. And if you've ever been to Kelleher Pond, Kelleher Pond recently, there's a pair of swans that have taken up residence on that island. Again, lots of bird examples today. While we were there, uh, what I thought was the male swan was swimming around. You know, I have no idea how I can tell the difference, but I'm just assuming it was the male. The other one was on the nest sitting in the in the middle on the island, but maybe they both sit. I don't know that much about birds. I'm learning. He was swimming around the island, just kind of ducking his head in and eating food and stuff. And these two geese flew onto the pond. And instantly, the male swan took notice and started to pursue these geese and then started to fly these huge wingspan, this enormous bird. I mean, geese are, sorry, uh, swans are big and chased them all around and chased them to like another section of of the pond. But that wasn't good enough. He continued to chase them, and he brought up right until where we were standing on the shore and like chased the geese out of the water. And my wife started to feel a little like nervous about this because, you know, you heard the story about the guy that got killed by the, the, the swan on the kayak recently. No? Okay, that happened. So it's like, you know, you're like, okay, this is a big animal, you know, like, okay, we got to get out of here. So we ran, right? But this is a picture of what Jesus is doing on the earth. He's not satisfied with just him being resurrected and he won, yay, good luck all of you. The enemies are the geese and he is working to chase them out of this pond that is our world. That is the destiny of this planet. Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father until God makes every enemy a footstool for his feet. That is something to cheer about. Come on. This is what he is doing. The resurrection is the remedy for death, and it's also the remedy for this world. Jesus, where is he? What's he doing? He is working. He is working in this world to eradicate everything that is a result of the fall. So how is Jesus doing this? I mean, I haven't seen him recently. Or, I mean, yet, ever. 
Is he really doing this? I mean, is there any proof? I mean, how would you even know? Let's keep reading. On the evening of that day, this is verse 19, the first day of the week. So this is, you know, he rose from the dead. This is that, and later that night, he's not wasting a lot of time here. The doors were being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They thought maybe they were the next ones that are going to be crucified for joining Jesus in this crazy adventure that he did. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. He said, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Understatement of the century. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the sins from any, it is withheld. The third thing the resurrection means is that we get new life so that we can give new life to the world. The resurrection means that Jesus is making us new so that we can make the world new. The resurrection means that Jesus is giving us life so that we can work his plan into this earth. It's a transformed people that transform the world. In this passage, you see right from the beginning, he's saying, okay, guys, this isn't just about me being cool and being resurrected from the dead. God sent me, and I am sending you. I'm going to ascend to the Father. You're going to be kind of sad about that, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Right? Jesus breathes on them. Kind of weird. I'm assuming that given that he conquered death, he also conquered bad breath. And so that was also defeated. And he breathes on them with this fresh resurrection breath and says, receive the Holy Spirit. In that moment, something is happening. God is going so far as to make his residence in people. Now, for them, these Jews, you have to understand that is a crazy idea. If you asked a Jew, where's God? They'd go like this. They would point to the temple. That's God's house. That's where he lives. No one gets to go in there except for the one high priest guy once a year. And they tie a rope around his leg in case he dies. So they can pull him out. That's the grid, right? Where's God? He's infinite. He's holy. He's all-powerful. And yet, through Jesus, through what he did in his death and resurrection, he makes a way for God to come and live with people. In all of our mess and all of the stuff that we've done, all of our selfishness and all of our imperfection, He is able to overlook that and forgive. That's what Jesus did. If you ever go to this park that I mentioned, Long Hill, it's in Beverly, part of the trustees of the reservations. It's a free one. You can go park for free and walk around. There's a large old kind of house, mansion-esque, and in front of that is the main attraction. It's two trees that grew up together and look like one tree. Now, oftentimes people compare that to, you know, marriage, two becoming one, and, you know, isn't it beautiful? And it really is. It's really an amazing picture. But it's also a picture of what God wants to do with people. He wants them to be in. And not just in family, like into his family, but even closer than that. The picture he uses is of actually of marriage, of like two becoming one, when he talks about the relationship he wants with people. 
That's how close he wants to be with us. That he's actually like in us, like around us, over us, through us, all the time. It simply takes a statement of saying, Jesus, I believe in you. I want to know you. I want to know God. I need to be forgiven. It's that simple. Because God wants his family. He wants you and me to be a part of that. In the book of Peter, Peter even goes so far as to say that when we put our trust in Jesus, we are partakers of the divine nature, as if God is making us like him and in him. It's just an incredible mystery that's hard to understand, but that is the God of the Bible, and that is why Easter is awesome, because Jesus rose from the dead to bring us into relationship with God and make us one with God. He bought us forgiveness through his death and his resurrection brings us into his new creation and into relationship with God. And so Jesus sends the disciples in this new nature that now they've been given God's spirit within them to transform their lives, to fill them with so much love that they through love would be able to transform the world. To spread God's kingdom, his rule, God's way, the way life's supposed to be over the earth. They become the agents of this mission. Their message is forgiveness and their method is love. That is God's kingdom in a nutshell. And that is what God is working, that Jesus is working to spread over this whole earth. And he, and he connects the disciples to others. He says, whoever you forgive is forgiven. It's not just for the disciples. It's for everyone else. The message is to spread all over the world. Now, I didn't look into the history of this or why, but I'm sure there is some there. But we often now associate Easter with a bunny. Isn't that sweet, right? Now, whatever you think of that, I mean, it's in some ways probably harmless, Right? I know it's about Jesus, and we've kind of made it about a bunny. But there's something remarkable about the bunny. Does anybody know what is the most remarkable thing about rabbits? You all know. They reproduce. I read an article this morning from some guy with a PhD, and it was on the Internet, so I'm sure it was true. You know, that rabbits, if left unchecked, you know, if there was no predators, in seven years they would go from like one to a billion. So if you want to herd some rabbits in your backyard, good luck with that. Many more than you can take. But what I want to say is when you think of the rabbit in Easter, you think of reproduction. You think of multiplication. That is exactly what Jesus wants his followers to do. He wants them to multiply like rabbits and spread his love and forgiveness all over this earth. And that is happening. There are more people they would say that Jesus is Lord on this earth than there are of any other religion. Any other. Two billion from 12. Actually, 11. Judas died. So they started with 11. They were down one right from the beginning. But they rebounded, and now we're at two billion. What I'm trying to say is that God's kingdom is expanding over this earth. And it will not relent. It will continue to move forward. So that all will know God's love, so that all will know his forgiveness, and so that every enemy will be made a footstool for Jesus' feet. This is exciting. It means that we are moving forward. Sickness, death, everything that is bad is being eradicated from this planet. 
That is the message of resurrection. The resurrection is the remedy for death in us and in this world. It is the remedy. So the final question is this. How do we access this new life? If there's this new life in Jesus, if there's all this excitement of him, you know, beating all the enemies and winning the victory, how come I don't see that around me? How come I don't see it in my own life? Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, probably because he had a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands in the mark of, it, of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You're a true skeptic here, New Englander. Way to go, Thomas. Okay? Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So that was pretty impressive. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to, you, to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That you may have life in his name. We access the new life by believing in Jesus and his resurrection. It's that simple and yet also that difficult. We access new life by putting our faith in Jesus, by trusting him, that he's the son of God, that he's Lord, that he's ruling over this world, and that he rose again to do that. We find out in you know, John's writing this last section of his book, there's another chapter that happens after this where we talked about earlier you know, in the month when we talked about Peter. But he's writing this whole book. Why? So that people will believe. This is the best that he can offer as one who says earlier, like, I have seen these things and I am writing them so that you will know that Jesus is the Christ. If he had had a video camera back then, he would have videotaped it and put it on the internet for everyone to see. This was the best he could do back then, right? And what John means by life, he, he elucidates that earlier in the book. He says it's like, it's like feeling truly alive being full of joy and peace and love. You know, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Jesus says, the thief comes only to still kill and destroy, talking about the devil. But he says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Do you realize that Jesus wants you to have joy in your life and to the full capacity? He wants you to have life abundantly. That is his will for your life. And the Bible says that God is the only source of abundant life. He created it, and he is the only one who gives spiritual, emotional, mental life, as well as physical life. And that's why Jesus says, and this is eternal life, not just like in duration, but in like quality as well. He says that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The Bible is clear that abundant life, joy, and freedom like you can never imagine is only available in Jesus. And that comes by simply putting our faith in him. 
We come into life by knowing God, by being in a relationship with Him. And then He works to work that life in our lives. Jesus is the way to relationship with God. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We need the forgiveness that Jesus offers to come into a relationship with God. But through that, Jesus says, when we come into that relationship, our old self is dead. It's that Jesus died, and if we believe in him, we die with him. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The resurrection is the remedy for the death inside of us. And we receive that remedy by faith. Let's have the band come back up. Hey, for some of you here today, you may not be a follower of Jesus. Maybe this is your first time in church or first time in a while. But I would just encourage you today to consider taking a step towards Jesus, whatever that may look like for you. Maybe that first step is just investigating the trustworthiness of the Bible. Like, can you actually trust what's in this book? Is it reliable? Maybe it's going to see the Case for Christ movie. Is that, that's in the theaters right now. Nobody heard of that? Okay, maybe that's not that popular. All right, that's not, okay. I haven't seen it. Maybe it's reading that book, just investigating, hey, is there any evidence to say that Jesus could have actually risen from the dead historically? Maybe that's where you're at. Or some other kind of, you know, investigation of just, you know, could even God exist in this world, right? Is there rational reasons to believe that there's a God? Maybe for you it's more just getting personal and challenging God to meet you in the same way that he did even for Thomas. Now, Thomas gets kind of a bad rap, but I don't think that's how Jesus' attitude was towards him. He came to him and just showed him. He wouldn't say, tough luck, Thomas. You missed it. You weren't there on the first night. Sorry, buddy. You're stuck in unbelief. No, Jesus came to him. It's a picture of what Jesus wants to do for each one of us is to meet us in the place when we invite him to do that. Maybe that's where it is for you. Maybe you're at the point where you want to commit to following Jesus today. I would encourage you to take that step. It's really simple. You say, Jesus, I believe in you. Please forgive me. I want to follow you. Put it in your own words. For those of you that are followers of Jesus, the challenge actually is also to believe. The challenge is to believe that you are dead to sin and that you are alive to obeying God. That Jesus actually can make a difference in your life and how you live it. If the Bible is true, then you have the power to do what is right in your life as a follower of Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus is in you. If Jesus can, I can. It's that simple. But our faith is what actualizes that in our lives. I am dead to sin, but alive to obeying God. All the struggles in your life, Jesus has conquered. I want to read with this final thought from a guy named Graham Cook. In his blog earlier this week, he wrote this. It was titled, Our New Life Began with a Funeral. We cannot have new life unless the old is dead and gone. Our ever-increasing knowledge needs to be, I am dead to the old and I am alive to the new. What do you find yourself focusing on more? The old dead you or the new alive you in Jesus? 
because our focus determines what we give life to. We often find ourselves dealing with the old when Jesus has already taken care of that old person. We can stop fighting the old and start living in the new. There is no need to look back to our life before Christ. This only stunts our growth in Him. Our focus is to solely be on who we are becoming in Him. This is the key to a life of freedom in Jesus. It's because we're dead to sin and we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have the power inside of us because if we put our faith in Jesus, He is in us. And not to transform us only, but also through love to transform the world. And Jesus is on a mission and He don't lose. Let's pray. Lord, as we, as we sing the last few songs, um, just to engage with you, we just pray you'd speak to each one of us, Lord. Wherever we're at, whether it's just questioning that, you know, if you even existed or if there's a God, to knowing that we need to take a step of faith today to trust that we can do it, Lord. We can obey and we can live a transformed life. We just invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and fill this room right now with the presence and the glory and the beauty of Jesus. Come speak to us now as we respond.